It has been more than 24 hours since a gunman named Robert Card is suspected of shooting and killing 18 people in Maine's second largest city. 13 more were injured. Card is now formally a suspect. He has been charged with eight counts of murder, one for each of the victims identified by police so far. As police identify more of the victims, we anticipate the number of charges will rise. Tonight, authorities reiterated that Card is still at large and the manhunt is continuing by air, land and sea. In the last hour, there has been significant law enforcement presence near a home in Bowdoin, Maine, in connection to their search for Robert Card. According to that NBC affiliate, a search warrant was executed at that home earlier today. Now, it is standard practice to search any property affiliated with a suspect, and law enforcement officials tell NBC News that as of right now, there is no clear indication that Card is in that home or at any specific address. But you are looking at live footage of this police search near that Bowdoin home, where shortly after 7 p.m. Eastern, our NBC News affiliate reported police saying, Robert, come out with your hands up. Maine State Police say that that sort of loudspeaker announcement is standard procedure when executing a search warrant. Law enforcement is still urging anyone with knowledge of Card's whereabouts to contact them at the number you see right here on your screen. So this is still very much a live story. We are following the ongoing manhunt, and we are going to bring the latest news on that front as we have it. But we start this evening with some clarity about what happened last night. Last evening at 6.56 p.m., police received the first 911 call notifying them that a man had walked into the Just-In-Time Recreation Center and bowling alley and had begun shooting. Here's how a witness inside the bowling alley described that moment. Well, we were inside and just normal night of bowling and out of nowhere he just came in and there was a loud pop. thought it was a balloon. I had my back turned to the door. Um, and as soon as I turned and saw that it was not a balloon, he was holding a weapon, I just booked it um, down the lane and I slid basically into where the pins are and climbed up in the machine and was on top of the machines for about 10 minutes until the cops got there. NBC has not independently confirmed this, but another Lewiston resident told the Associated Press that Wednesday night is practice night for a youth bowling league. He told the AP that he and his son normally attend that evening, but they did not last night. My son is 15 years old, and he's in the um, Lewiston-Auburn Youth Bowling League. Uh, Wednesday night is practice for the children. Um, so normally we go, uh, this time we decided to, uh, skip it for, you know, kind of just on a whim, I guess. And, uh, it turned out possibly to be a life-saving situation. My brother is, um, he helps run the league. And, uh, from what I hear, he was on the side where the shooter was not. Um, so he was able to shepherd some kids out. Seven people were found dead at the just-in-time bowling alley. Twelve minutes after the first 911 call at that bowling alley, police received multiple calls that a man had come into a local bar, Schmengi's Bar, and began shooting. Schmengi's is a 10-minute drive from the bowling alley, so the shooter appears to have been moving very quickly. Last night was industry night at Schmengi's Bar. If you worked in the bar or the restaurant industry, you got 25% off your bill. 
The bar was also hosting a cornhole tournament organized by the American Deaf Cornhole Players Association. That group puts together deaf, hard of hearing, and child of deaf adult-only beanbag toss tournaments. And Schmengi's hosts one every Wednesday night. Ultimately, eight individuals were found dead at Schmengi's bar. Another three individuals were pronounced dead later at area hospitals. There are still eight patients at the Central Maine Medical Center tonight. Five are in stable condition. Three are in critical condition. Police still do not know of a motive in these shootings, but NBC News spoke with the suspect's sister-in-law, Katie Card. She said that Robert Card began to hear voices a couple of months ago when he started using high-powered hearing aids. Voices, she said, Card believed were saying horrible things about him. Again, NBC has not yet independently confirmed this detail, but the Daily Beast also spoke with Katie Card, and she told them that Robert Card specifically insisted that he heard voices bashing him at the just-in-time recreation, bowling, recreation center and bowling alley and at Schmengi's bar. What we know about the suspect so far is that Card is 40 years old, he is a firearms instructor, and he is a longtime Army reservist. An official at the Department of Defense tells NBC News that this July, leaders of Card's reservist unit informed their superiors that Robert Card was behaving erratically. Out of concern for his safety, the unit requested that law enforcement be contacted. Two senior law enforcement officials tell NBC News that Card was then sent by his military unit commanders to a mental health facility for two weeks before being released. Four senior law enforcement officials also told NBC News tonight that a note was found by investigators in Robert Card's home. ABC News is reporting that the note is being described as a suicide note addressed to the suspect's son, but NBC News has not yet confirmed this. As I said, this is still very much an ongoing situation. Tonight, public schools in the area, Bates College, along with Androscoggin County and Northern Sagadahawk County are all still under shelter-in-place orders. And the manhunt for Robert Card is very much underway. Last night at 9.56 p.m., the police found Card's white Subaru abandoned at a boat launch in nearby Lisbon, Maine. Two sources familiar with the matter tell NBC News that a gun was found in the car. Officials are still investigating whether that gun is the weapon used in the massacres yesterday. More than 350 local and federal law enforcement officers are actively searching for the suspect, Robert Card, this evening. That includes sea and air search terms from the Coast Guard because of the potential that Card could be fleeing by boat. And the police standoff we are monitoring out of Bowdoin, Maine, where, again, a reporter with our NBC affiliate station heard police say, Robert, come out with your hands up. Again, we do not know for certain that Card is in this house. This is all still unfolding as we speak. Joining me now from on the ground in Bowdoin, Maine, is NBC News correspondent George Solis. George, thanks for joining me tonight. Can you tell us any more about what is happening in or around that house in Bowdoin, Maine that was a subject of so much interest? Yeah, good evening, Alex. Certainly a mass exodus of police is what we saw within like the last five or ten minutes or so after the large caravan of authorities left. What was left was a SWAT unit parked where it's now just essentially a black hole, a void over there. And you saw some officers on foot with flashlights canvassing this property. It's massive here. Uh, Right now, what we really just have is a large presence of media that was here during that giant 
uh, influx of attention that arose here at the property when you had the helicopter circling, you had the drones here around the property, you heard those calls of Robert we have you surrounded, come out with your hands up, which as you've mentioned, is all pretty standard when it comes to those search warrants. So now the question becomes, have authorities learned of a new location? Are, is there any other reason for them to come back to this property as they did more than once? So these are the questions. As you mentioned, at the home here, they did find a note. NBC is still working to verify the contents of that note. And you mentioned what was found in the car, that Subaru that was found uh, in Lisbon, uh, a town about 20 or so minutes from here where they found that gun. And authorities are still working to verify whether that gun may have been used in that mass shooting. So at this moment, the question still remains, where is Robert Card tonight? Could he still be in this area? Is he in this town, in one of the adjoining towns, or is it even within state lines? Again, for a while there, it seemed like the attention was heavily focused here in Bowdoin. You still had the helicopter even after all of the cops left, but now it is quiet. It is still pitch black out here because authorities were telling us to keep our lights down as they were in this neighborhood in this area. My colleague Sam Brock was here uh, earlier saying that the property here uh, that they own is hundreds of acres uh, belonging to Robert Card's family here. And you mentioned uh, some of the reports from the family, of, uh, obviously of concern uh, as it relates to his mental health. I myself have been in the adjoining towns today talking to residents people who are impacted by the shutdown. I spoke with a mother today in Lisbon where that car was found who was carrying a weapon today out in the open because she said if he, heaven forbid, appeared out of nowhere, she wanted to make sure she could protect her child. And that is just some of the context of what we're dealing with around here. We were outside of the hospital today where you mentioned there are still people recovering. Outside of there, you saw officers with long guns as medical personnel were fluctuating in and out. And we know a lot of medical personnel have been at that hospital helping the people that were injured in this shooting. And then earlier today, I spoke with the relative of someone who died in that bowling alley, a man identified as Bill Young. His son also died, about 14 years old, Chris uh, Young dying in that bowling alley. And the family, of course, inconsolable tonight as they learned, excuse me, Aaron Young uh, was the, the uh, young man's name, inconsolable tonight after learning that they were among the victim. At one point, they had no idea. They were trying to get in touch with him and they couldn't. They said that the last known location of that cell phone pinged at that bowling alley. They were calling desperately. They were ch checking the hospitals. They were checking that reunification center to no avail. And so they waited, they waited until finally word did come down from authorities that they were unfortunately among the deceased. And so obviously as daybreak comes, there will be more stories of survivors, more stories of the deceased. And it is just weighing so heavily on this town because at the end of it, it is about the people here, the communities that have been impacted. They are so close knit here. We've been saying this today a lot. This state does not see this type of mass casualty. Last year alone, Maine reported 29 murders. Here you have 18 in one night. A lot of people still coming to terms with what happened in this community. And again, when you see these pockets of police activity potentially zeroing in on this suspect, people pay attention. People are hoping that this is the resolution. But at this hour, Alex, the manhunt, this intensive manhunt is still continuing. 
George Solis, thanks for the great reporting, George. Please do stay safe. I want to turn now to our NBC News correspondent for investigations, Tom Winter. Tom, thanks for being here. Just to sort of close the loop on on this house in Bowdoin, Maine. Sure. The the loudspeaker saying Robert come out, I think, had a lot of people hopeful that this was the end of this 24 hours of of terror. It sounds like that was standard operating procedure for law enforcement. Completely standard operating procedure. So what they want to do is they want to give whoever's in that house an opportunity, one, to make themselves known uh, so nobody shows anything or flashes anything that could be misconstrued, first thing. Second thing, if he is inside that home, gives him an opportunity to come out, hey, we're here, don't want a problem, come out of the house, let's end this. Um, but all the homes, according to our reporting, and I'm going to fold in here through for the next couple of minutes that we speak, reporting my colleague Jonathan Deanst, Ken Delanian, Andrew Blankstein, talking to a number of law enforcement officials who have been briefed on this, have direct knowledge of the matter. Uh, there is no indication that he's inside that particular home that we've been talking about, that George has been talking about. There's no indication that he's necessarily in that area specifically. But as they go from house to house, they like to come back from time to time and try to identify, is there anywhere we didn't search? Is there a particular uh, storage shed? As you can imagine, it's Maine. You've got, you know, you got to have a snowblower. You got to have your your ATVs. You got to have all your stuff. So um, are there any other places on these properties that we should give a second look? Did he double back at all? Uh, Particularly because these are properties that are known to him. We know that. Uh, So that's the reason why they're doing what they're doing. To George's point about the lights being down, there's certain technical capabilities uh, that law enforcement is going to use in these situations. And so the fewer uh, fewer lights that are on uh, from our perspective, uh, the better for law enforcement. So I mean, Tom, it is happening. It's a massive search underway. Sure. And and yet, based on you know, the sort of point of interest in the last hour, appears to have not actually amounted to much as far as apprehending the suspect. Is there any sense that more resources need to be allocated here? Is there, I mean, give us a sense of kind of the scope of of this investigation and whether law enforcement thinks it's adequate. Sure. So, from a standpoint of what's happening, it may feel like not much is happening, but there's a lot of things that they've got to check off. So there's two different things that are going on. There's lost person theory, which will be used to try to determine, okay, we know the individual is of a certain age, uh, a certain background, a certain physical fitness, who's actually trying to elude law enforcement. So where would that individual go? There's actually science and data behind it. It's not something that's talked about very often. That's the first thing. Second thing that's going on, you know, you want to make sure you hit all your known points. What's going to be comfortable to this individual? Very clearly, based on all of our reporting, what may have triggered him for this incident, which appears at this point, according to multiple senior law enforcement officials, perhaps there was something involving a now ex-girlfriend who had a nexus to one of the locations that was shot last night or something that she particularly liked to do uh, that had him interested in committing one of these acts of violence. You're not dealing with somebody, anybody who does this is not a rational person, Alex. We talked about that last night. So if somebody is in particular mental health distress, what are going to be some of the things that are going to be comforting to this individual? Where are they going to go? So yes, they're not hitting the oil in the well, so to speak. But at the same point, they're also crossing off a lot of different places where this person might be, uh, places that they might want to search for additional clues. Has he gone back there to try to get food? Has he gone back there to try to get clothing? So um, yes, we're not 
seeing a person in handcuffs right now or a dead suspect. On the other hand, they're trying to move along and, and, and pick off all these areas as they continue their work. Tom, and I, I apologize in advance for asking you a question that you may not know the answer to, but the, the boat, um, we know the Coast, the Coast Guard is looking uh, by sea because Robert Card apparently had access to a boat. I think he may have owned a boat, 15-foot bo- mm-hmm. boat, that so far has not been retrieved. Is that right? I want to be a little careful here. There is a report that is out that I do not believe is accurate about the boat being missing at this time. Um, I can't get into a lot more details than that. Uh, The Coast Guard naturally would want to look, I think, first and foremost, that people need to understand, you've got a body of water. It's a great place for somebody to kind of run into a natural obstacle. It's a potentially great place for somebody to hide. The U.S. Coast Guard has all sorts of capabilities. They're highly trained. So the idea that they're going to be running up and down uh, the river that's in that area, obviously we're not too too far from the ocean, uh, to try to figure out where this individual is, uh, is in, in given the idea, even though it's not that cold, certainly by Maine standards tonight, yeah. uh, that somebody could, you know, try to get across that river uh, is, a, you know, feels to me like a really smart thing for them to do. So I don't think we want to key in too much on the boat at this point. Um, and if we get more details that we can share on that, we certainly will. I uh, just am cognizant of the fact that it's, you know, it's 2023 and individuals have the ability to stream our, our programming. Of course. And you never know who's going to watch us. So there's that. You know, I think back to last night when you and I first started talking about this and the totality of this tragedy started to become clear. There's so much more that we know and so much more that we, we don't, don't know as we continue on this path. And so I think as, as potential motives come into a little bit more clarity, what this individual's current mindset is obviously very much an open question. And I want, as much as we're focusing on the idea of a manhunt, that this person could be out there, could be trying to move from place to place, obviously rural. You saw how dark it was uh, behind George. The 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 other component of this is that this individual may be dead uh, and they may be dead because they uh, they committed suicide. So I think that's something that uh, died by suicide. So I think that's something that we have to keep in mind as well, that that's a that's a potential. Um, the note that was left behind, uh, I don't want to get into a lot of detail about what's behind that. I, I don't know if I would describe it the way that other news organizations have. Uh, as far as uh, where this investigation goes from here, you mentioned resources. There are at least, according to reporting we've done, 350 members of law enforcement yeah. are working on this. New Hampshire State Police been in the game. They were up to two, almost 2.30 this morning with their helicopter. Uh, they're, they're back at it all day long. Uh, the FBI brings I- enormous ca- technical capabilities. Uh, they've got some enormous tactical capabilities that are there. We started to talk about SWAT last night. Yeah. That's been augmented since then. Um, and they bring investigative capabilities combined with the Maine State Police and the New England State Police agencies, which are very familiar with this. The idea of searching for somebody in the rural parts of New England for the New Hampshire and Maine State Police is not at all a foreign thing to them. So they are definitely capable of doing this type of work. Well, we will stand by for more. Tom Winter, you've been doing such important, essential reporting in this hour. Thanks so much for your your energies. When we come back, the massacre in Lewiston prompts one congressman to change his stance on assault-style weapons. Plus, questions about how the suspect, reportedly in the throes of a mental health crisis, how he was allowed to keep those guns. That is next. I have opposed efforts to ban deadly weapons of war, like the assault rifle used to carry out this crime. The time has now come for me to take responsibility for this failure, which is why I now call on the United States Congress to ban assault rifles like the one used by the sick perpetrator of this mass killing. 
That was Maine Congressman Democrat Jared Golden, whose district includes the city of Lewiston, grappling in real time with the reality that Lewiston will now forever be associated with a gruesome massacre. And that raises, once again, the question of what can be done to prevent this from happening yet again. The suspect in the killings, Robert Card, a 40-year-old Army reservist and trained firearms instructor, used a sniper rifle that he purchased legally this year. Also this year, and reportedly sometime after that gun purchase, the suspect had a mental health crisis, one that involved threats of shooting a military base. Two senior law enforcement officials tell NBC News that the suspect was sent by commanders of his military unit for two weeks of inpatient psychiatric treatment. Robert Card's sister-in-law also tells NBC News that the family had recently alerted police and military officials when they grew concerned about Card's mental health. So given those accounts, how was Mr. Card still able to have a gun? Federal law prohibits someone who has been formally committed to a mental health facility from having guns. And there are also so-called red flag laws in 21 states that allow families to petition judges to order someone to give up their weapons temporarily if they are deemed to pose a threat to themselves or others. The state of Maine, though, has a weaker version of this kind of law, a so-called yellow flag law that requires extra procedures before petitioning a judge. It is unclear at this moment whether any attempt was made to use Maine's yellow flag law to take the shooting suspect's weapons. But in a state that has been remarkably pro-gun, a state that does not require background checks on all gun sales, a state where citizens are allowed to carry guns without permits, residents are still questioning how this happened. One resident of Lewiston told NBC News, it has been a major, major shock. We never expected something like this to happen here. We always felt super safe. Joining us now is Margaret Groban, a former federal prosecutor who now teaches Second Amendment and firearm law at the University of Maine. She is also a board member of the Maine Gun Safety Coalition, a nonprofit organization that advocates for stricter gun laws. Professor Groban, thanks for being here. Um, And I am sorry for anyone you know in Maine who has been affected by this horrible tragedy. Um, Let me just first start with the federal gun laws. It sounds at first glance as though as though that law should have been in effect for this individual who was in a mental health facility and who had firearms. What happened here? Yes, the federal law is very narrowly drawn and it would only apply. The firearm ban would only apply if Mr. Card had been involuntarily committed to that mental hospital or that mental facility. And we still don't know whether or not he committed himself voluntarily Uh, or involuntarily. And that makes the world of difference. That is a massive sort of distinction, isn't it? That someone who could be having psychotic or mental health episodes where he is hearing voices, but if he, he sort of checks himself into an inpatient care facility, can still possess a gun according to federal law. And in fact, the law provides that if that that person has to be told of the firearm consequences, if they are involuntarily committed, which leads some individuals to commit themselves voluntarily so they will not be subject to the firearm ban. Can we talk about the sort of second layer of protection here, which is the yellow flag law that Maine has in place? I know that you've called that yellow flag law pathetic. (laughs) Could you elaborate on that and why you don't think it's effective? Yes, I feel like certainly it's better than nothing, but I think it creates obstacles that really allow it to be used effectively in our state because it requires three different determinations that someone is a danger to themselves or others. 
First, you have to go through the police and you have to call the police to come to your house and find that this person is a danger to themselves or others. Mm -hmm. A lot of people with family members in crisis are not comfortable, for obvious reasons, involving the police. Either they're worried about the response or they're worried their loved one's going to be arrested. So there is, and our, our fatality review board found that there's enormous danger to police in responding to these incidents as well, and they feel trauma from responding to these incidents. So uh, first, the police have to respond. If they find they're a danger, then they take the individual into protective custody, which sounds an awful lot like an arrest. Arrest, yeah. Then they have to be seen by a mental health professional who makes the determination whether or not that person, a second person, makes a determination that that person is a danger to themselves or others. That has to be in writing. And then it goes to a judge to make the determination that that person is a danger to themselves or others. So it creates these layers that really are not necessary and makes it much more difficult for this law to be effective. Now, it has been used. I think it's been used around 80 times, which is a good thing. Yes. But it could be even better, especially in a state where gun suicide is one of our biggest gun problems. Well, and you see how close this family got to checking even the many boxes that exist in terms of the yellow right. flag law, right? They right. alert law enforcement and military officials. Something's not right. with we, we are worried about Robert Card's behavior. And yet it just wasn't enough to get the weapon seized. Right. And so with red flag laws, that family with a loved one in distress can go straight to the court right. and file an affidavit uh, under penalty of perjury. If people are concerned about people misusing the process, they do it under penalty of perjury, saying my loved one is in crisis. I'm worried they're going to harm themselves or others. Please take their gun away. And guns are, I mean, judges are very used to dealing with these issues. They make determinations about safety and danger every day of the week when they set bail, when they sentence people. So this is not an uncomfortable situation for a judge to be in. And I think Maine would be really well served if we improved our yellow flag law. Uh, the other issue is we have very limited mental health professionals in the state. Yeah. So we're using these mental health professionals for an assessment, but not for treatment. Well, clearly something needs to change. And yes. the big question is, will it? We will see. Professor Margaret Groban, thank you for your time and expertise. It's great to have you here in New York today. Thank you so much. More ahead this evening. The fate of over 200 hostages being held by Hamas and other radical groups is still uncertain. A former director of hostage recovery for the U.S. government joins me later in the hour. But first, there is a lot to know about the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson. Most of it is really, really controversial. That is next. This is a this is a dark time in America. We have a, a, a lot of problems and we're really, really hopeful and prayerful. Prayer is appropriate in a time like this, that the evil can end and this senseless violence can stop. And so that's, that's the statement this morning for the, on behalf of the entire House of Representatives. Everyone wants this to end, and I'll leave it there. That was the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, today, suggesting prayer after a massacre in Lewiston, Maine. Now, 61% of the American public supports an assault weapons ban, but the Speaker, a deeply conservative congressman from Louisiana, has not said much about gun safety legislation and is unlikely to. That's because being out of step with public sentiment is sort of a calling card 
for the new Speaker of the House, as is being at odds with the facts. In December of 2020, at President Trump's bidding, Congressman Johnson sent an email from his personal address to every House Republican. He wanted them to sign on to an amicus brief for a Texas lawsuit that was trying to invalidate the Electoral College votes from Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, all states that Joe Biden had won. And if Trump's threat wasn't already implied, Johnson let his colleagues know for certain that he, meaning Trump, will be anxiously awaiting the final list to review. And the email from Mike Johnson, the threat from Trump, worked. In the end, more than 60 percent of House Republicans signed on to Mike Johnson's amicus brief. And the lawsuit, the one that the brief was supporting, the lawsuit itself was way out there. According to The New York Times, the lawyer for the House Republican leadership told Mr. Johnson that his arguments were unconstitutional. Congresswoman Congresswoman Liz Cheney, also a lawyer, called the brief embarrassing. A very conservative Supreme Court agreed with them. They threw the lawsuit out. Voting rights attorney Mark Elias characterized it this way. Other than the events that took place on January 6th, the Texas case was the most profoundly anti-democratic act in the post-election period. That is what Mike Johnson was rallying Republican support for. The most profoundly anti-democratic act in the post-election period. And that was after Johnson served as part of Donald Trump's defense team in the House during Trump's first impeachment hearing and after he tried to expunge both Trump impeachments. And then there were Johnson's positions before he even entered Congress. New York Times congressional correspondent Annie Carney reports that when Mike Johnson was an attorney for the conservative legal group, the Alliance Defense Fund, Johnson spoke out against homosexuality, calling it inherently unnatural and a dangerous lifestyle, and he linked it to bestiality. In 2004, Johnson proclaimed experts project that homosexual marriage is the dark harbinger of chaos and sexual anarchy that could doom even the strongest republic. Gay rights are not the only subject where Mr. Johnson is wildly out of step with the American public. As a congressman, he has called for a national abortion ban as recently as 2021, and he co-sponsored a 20-week abortion ban last year. He even managed to blame school shootings on abortion. This is what he said to journalist Erin Carmone in 2015. Many women use abortion as a form of birth control, you know, in certain segments of society, and it's just shocking and sad, but this is where we are. When you break up the nuclear family, when you tell a generation of people that life has no value, no meaning, that it's expendable, then you do wind up with school shooters. Abortion, school shootings. That is the man Republicans now have leading the United States House of Representatives. New York Times congressional reporter Annie Carney, who just wrote about the elevation of Mike Johnson, she joins me next. Stay with us. At the end of the day, it's the problem is the human heart. It's not guns, it's not the weapons. At the end of the day, we have to protect the, the right of the citizens to protect themselves. And that's the Second Amendment. This is not the time to be talking about legislation. We're in the middle of that crisis right now. The problem is the human heart. It's not guns. This is not the time to talk about legislation. 
That was the new Speaker of the House, Congressman Mike Johnson, in an interview with Fox News this evening. Joining me now is Annie Carney, congressional correspondent for The New York Times. Annie, uh, Mike Johnson saying that the problem is the human heart and not guns. It's about the right of protecting the right of citizens to defend themselves. I don't know if anybody's flagged this for Congressman Johnson, but Maine is a permitless carry state. You can have a concealed weapon without a permit. And that did not stop a lone gunman from massacring uh, 15 people. Annie, what was the calculation of moderates, normies, as they are being called in the House Republican conference in electing this individual? I think that what happened was after three weeks of being unable to uh, rally around any speaker, um, they were worn down. They had, you know, shown some spine that— People didn't really expect of them when they rejected Jim Jordan on the House floor and just steadfastly refused to support Jim Jordan, who is more well-known and has more baggage and more enemies. Mike Johnson kind uh, of—he's never served in leadership. He's never chaired a powerful committee in Congress. He's basically been a backbencher who's been there since 2017, and therefore he has developed fewer enemies and fewer people who just personally despise him. What we saw over the past three weeks was a lot of people um, taking out personal grudges on people, on colleagues they simply can't stand. Mike Johnson doesn't have a lot of enemies because he's never been in a position of great power in the House. So he would have never risen to this position and been elected unanimously by the House Republicans if it wasn't after three weeks and four failed candidates for speaker. Um, Ultimately, conservatives got— someone really in the mold of Jim Jordan. He calls Jim Jordan a mentor. Uh, You went through all of his socially conservative positions. He's a deeply evangelical, Christian, religious conservative on social issues. Um, He was an election denier. And um, moderates all voted for him, partly because um, it was just time. The, the the deadlock couldn't really go on any longer, and it was time to come together. And he doesn't have that many enemies. And this is what they purchased, an individual who believes that a massacre in Maine is about the human heart and not guns or gun safety legislation. I got to ask you, Annie, it sounds from reporting that we have this evening like conservatives in his conference are going to allow a short term spending bill to keep the government open, a sort of honeymoon period for their new speaker. But one wonders what the price he must pay in return is and whether or not some of their most florid fever dreams, their conservative dreams of impeaching, for example, Joe Biden, are things that the Speaker of the House might actually deliver on. I mean, do you have a sense of what the wish list is from conservatives and how malleable the new speaker might be in terms of delivering on it? Well, we no, not really yet. I think that today was kind of, for a lot of people, a breather after these three horrible weeks of chaos. I don't think there's going to be a very long grace period here for him. Um, We'll see if they keep the government funded. Um, If they don't pass some sort of short-term spending bill next month, we'll have a government shutdown. Um, We'll see if they give him a little more leeway, but he still has to pass appropriations bills with um, deep cuts. We'll see if he can do that. And then he didn't mention the impeachment of Joe Biden in his first speech as speaker yesterday. It it wasn't mentioned. Um, But I think that in a way, an inexperienced speaker like this gives some of the other um, members of the leadership team, like Steve Scalise and Elise Stefanik, more power at this moment. He's relying on on them. They were sort of cut out of of the inner circle with Kevin McCarthy, the former speaker, who relied on 
um, a few of his trusted aides and didn't really trust the other people who are technically in the leadership, the majority leader and the conference chair. I think we're going to see uh, an inexperienced speaker leaning on them a little bit more. And Elise Stefanik is, you know, one of Trump's closest allies in the House, certainly will be pushing for an impeachment. Um, but he hasn't mentioned that yet. <clears throat> um, the first thing he did was bring up a resolution in support of Israel. And he said the next his next priority was going to be, you know, dealing with the border crisis. Um, he has to the first short term crisis on his hands is this looming government shutdown. And we'll see where he goes from there. Um, but we don't know a lot about what he is as a leader, because um, this is a very inexperienced uh, rank-and-file member rising to this position in an extraordinary thing that would have never—no one would have ever guessed that you could become speaker like this. Yeah. It's a sign of the times that the fact that he didn't mention impeachment proceedings against the sitting president as sort of a hopeful sign on day one, that that wasn't mentioned in the first 24 hours of his new job, that, that that's a, a sign of hope. Uh, Annie Carney, thank you for the great reporting and analysis. I appreciate your time tonight. Thank you. When we come back, 10 American hostages are currently believed to be held by Hamas in Gaza. So how is the White House trying to get them back? We are going to speak to the man who, until last month, served as the director of hostage recovery for the American government. That's next. We demand not only the U.S., but all of the international community put at its highest agenda Number one agenda, bringing the hostages back home now. If you see this, Omer, know that you have United States behind you. Know that 220 people there out there with you are not forgotten. The United States is the only one who can lead this international effort to make our loved ones come back safely. Today, the family members of several Americans currently held hostage in Gaza spoke at a press conference urging the U.S. and the international community to do everything they can to bring the hostages back home. According to Israeli Defense Forces, Hamas and other terrorist groups are holding 224 hostages in Gaza. Ten Americans are believed to be among them, and President Biden says their release is his number one priority. He has reportedly asked the government of Israel to consider delaying a ground invasion of Gaza, hoping to buy time for hostage negotiations. It is unclear how successful President Biden will be. Yesterday, Israel announced that it sent tanks into, the, into northern Gaza as part of preparations for the next stage of fighting. Joining me now is Chris O'Leary. He is the former director of hostage recovery for the U.S. government. He also has decades of experience working in counterterrorism and hostage rescue and recovery efforts. Chris, thanks for being here tonight. Good to be here. Um, can I just ask you from the negotiation perspective how essential delaying a ground invasion is in terms of leverage with uh, Hamas or other terrorist organizations? Well, it's I don't know that it's uh, essential for leverage. Uh, Hamas has all the leverage right now. Yeah. Um, but it gives the opportunity for the Qataris uh, and, you know, partnership from uh, Egypt as well to continue the conversation. Um, and during that period, information is being gleaned as well to uh, help identify who's holding the hostages, start uh, you know, looking for information of where they be, may be held, their conditions. So it's an ongoing conversation um, and a negotiation uh, to try to get some concessions from each side. 
But right now, Hamas has all the leverage. What, why do you think Hamas released the four hostages that they did? It's two Israeli women, two American women. Do you do you was that to, a, a display of good faith? How do you read that? Uh, everything they've done. Uh, Hamas is a terrorist organization yeah. um, and they terrorize. Taking of hostages is part of that broader strategy. Everything they've done to this point is by design and calculated. Releasing to Americans, in my assessment, would be to sow discord between the United States and Israel, and Israel um, which was a very tight bond in the very beginning, still is very tight. But now there's a deviation on where we th- see things. Uh, the next step to Israeli women, um, it looks like it's humanitarian because they were older. But again, now you're, you have the hostage families in Israel asking for a delay, while the victims of October 7th are asking for vengeance. So it starts to erode the unity of effort, um, and that's what they want. It's to promote schism. Absolutely. Do you have any thesis as to how, why they chose the people they chose? It was it, it, the, Amer- the Israeli women are two older women, but the American women were— um, a young woman and her mother, there are obviously much younger people and much older people that are being held hostage. The Americans that were released, uh, the older American woman um, did have some uh, reportedly some medical conditions. Um, that is not in the interest of Hamas to have something go wrong. Um, and it's, they're not releasing her because of humanitarian reasons. Um, you can think of them as cattle ranchers. Um, and they are looking at the hostages as something that they want to send to market eventually. They want to keep them healthy, and they want to be able to get a good price for them later on. That's they're, pure and simple, the calculation simple. they're making. There's, there's not a humanitarian bone in their body for this. What is, the, what is happening behind closed doors? As, as If you could tell us, we, we understand that hostage negotiations are ongoing, but what does that meaningfully look like in terms of the different regional partners the U.S. is working through? Well, I'll tell you, uh, the United States has a great standard. It was born out of the Obama administration um, out of failure, um, but it was recognized by President Obama, and they did a complete hostage review Mm -hmm. um, and recognized our mistakes um, from what happened with failures for James Foley and Kayla Mueller and the other hostages. Um, So now it's a whole-of-government approach, which is what I sat over along with my partner, Roger Carstens, the special presidential envoy for hostage affairs, So when Americans take in, that entire enterprise synchronizes our efforts. But we've recognized in the last couple of years it needed to be connected to the international community as well. So we've started building those exercises and strengthening that connective tissue, um, trying to build for the worst case scenario. Nobody envisioned something this catastrophic. Um, But as you highlighted earlier, this is an international community problem. Yeah. There is an opportunity to go back to the United Nations the 1979 Convention Against Hostage Taking identifies the taking of hostages as a violation of human rights, and it violates criminal law. All right. Well, the fact that this is something to some degree the international community has looked at as a problem that needs to be solved, an exercise that needs to be run, is heartening in a moment that seems so chaotic and without end. Um, it's such a pleasure to have you. I really appreciate the time and thoughts. Chris O'Leary, thank you again for this evening. That's our show for tonight. 